to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Stand up very straight, lifting the head tall. Your muscles relaxed and your weight dropping vertically to your feet, which are flat on the floor. Bill Bracewell, a doctor of physical therapy practicing in Ukiah, California, for over 35 years is our guest on this edition of Radio Curious. He and I visited in the studios of Radio Curious on December 15, 2014, and began with Dr. Bracewell's description of physical therapy. Maximize, restore, and maintain range of movement. The best definition of physical therapy is that PTs maximize, restore, and maintain range of movement. And we're basically movement specialists, and, or at least we should be. And if we take care of movement, then relief of pain is a good cons- consequence of that. So my understanding is that movement stems from a given posture. What would be the ideal posture uh, for a human being? The ideal posture is the, is the, the most erect position we can be in because our movement does stem from our center and that came to me from a book called The Thinking Body. It was written by Mabel Todd and she was probably the first one in modern times anyway to suggest that our movement stems from our core and the Chinese probably knew that 3,000 years ago but she gave me that information. So the core, can you define the core, the top, and the bottom? The center of our mass is definitely in our pelvis. Our sacrum is the center of our mass. Um, All of our weight, the biggest muscles, the biggest bones, is completely centered in our pelvis. And so those big muscles are what generate the movement. And it should be a balanced movement. If it is, then we're going to be pretty erect. If it isn't, then we're going to be pulled over to one side by some of that tension. And by erect, you mean a straight line from the very top of the head going down to a space between the ankles. Absolutely. We've evolved that way. Uh, The best movement occurs from that position. Uh, the, The maintenance of our bones occurs from that position. Our stability the ability to not fall really uh, is related to how well you stand up. And you can't stand up fully uh, straight if you don't have a balance of movement. So you need range of movement in order to stand up straight. So if we were to begin with a, um, a baby just beginning to be a toddler, they toddle as a way to begin walking. Mm-hmm. And they emulate what they see adults do the way we walk. Mm-hmm. What is a child learning? What is the muscle memory that's developing at that time? Well, the toddler is a little different. The toddler's weight is centered in his head, so uh, that's probably how we end up being really erect because he has to balance himself under balance that weight, and so he spends a lot of his time uh, doing that, and so uh, gradually he develops that sense of balance around the center, though, which is really important. And the center, again, is that imaginary line that in order to balance the weight of that head, he's got to get under it and be straight. And be fully beneath it. 
be fully beneath it, exactly. So then we would have the development of the muscles of the body within the torso and within the legs that would keep the the, uh, toddler learning the skills of, of walking as the body grows heavier in relationship to the head. Can you tell us about that? Um, well, before he gets to that point where he can balance his head, he's developing muscles to lift his head. Uh, so uh, a good deal of his early energy is going to be spent just trying to get his head off the, the table. And then he starts to, to um, begin to crawl, and crawling really does synergize the movement between the shoulders and the hips. So that's what we should be carrying over from early on to adulthood. And unfortunately, when we stop having that really good posture, then we, we begin not to be able to do that. Tell us more. When we stop being able to synergize the movement between the shoulders and the hips. Okay, so you're lifting one, the baby's or toddler's lifting one hip going forward to crawl while at the same time, that shoulder's coming backwards. There's a muscle, big muscle, that actually is pulling that shoulder back. And if we carry that through to adulthood, then as the hip is pulled forward, the shoulder's pulled back. As a result, we end up staying balanced uh, throughout that entire step. In adult posture, standing, walking, and running, can you apply the balance that we learn as toddlers that is probably something of which we're really not aware. No, we aren't. And it's amazing to, you know, one of my things as a physical therapist is to observe people. So I end up uh, sometimes wishing I could shut it off uh, walking down a street or, and seeing how poorly people are balanced. And uh, you want to try to give them information, but you know it's best if uh, they come to you rather than you try to go to them. The detriment of unsolicited advice. Right, exactly. I want to talk about the benefits of physical therapy. But before we go there, let's talk about some of the deficits of having an imbalanced posture. Well, the disc. Everybody seems to know about disc and in our lower back and in our neck. And people consistently have problems there. Well, if your weight is not balanced over those discs, or if it's balanced off to the side, since that uh, disc is 70% fluid through most of our life, then that fluid is going to be impacted by the weight being off-center. So it's a really good idea. Then that's, again, what we're trying to do as PTs is to balance people right over the top of those discs, the center of those discs. Well, for those of us who may know nothing more about physical therapy other than we have a neck ache or a back ache. What is the impact of the fluid in the disc on the body when it is off balance? Well, it can then uh, put pressure on the nerve. That's your first clue that you're developing an imbalance in a disc because once that happens and you start to have pain that's off center, it's no longer in your neck, it's no longer in your back, is starting to be in your buttock or in your shoulder. Uh, it'll eventually go down in your leg, and that's when real disability happens. You lose function, you lose muscle strength, you lose sensation. 
Uh, you lose reflexes. That happened to me uh, as a young person. That's probably one of the reasons I went into PT in the first place was uh, that I had all of these problems as a teenager. I didn't realize it at the time, but uh, later on I realized, well, there's some, some subconscious things going on that brought me into PT. It was pain that you experienced by being off-center when you were a youngster that brought you to physical therapy. It was, and I didn't realize how bad it was until I got to Ukiah, actually. And I went to my 30th birthday party, and somebody took a picture of me from the side, and it was like an instant aha movement, uh, awareness that, oh my gosh, that's the reason I have so many headaches, so many problems with my neck. Uh, It was really pretty bad. Where was that in relationship to your career as a physical therapist? I was graduated from the University of Florida in 1970. Uh, I went to a rehab center to work uh, right out of uh, school. And then I went into the military, um, uh, first stationed at Valley Forge um, Army Hospital, where I saw Vietnam-era returnees. I saw a lot of amputations, a lot of nerve injuries. That's what first piqued my interest in nerve injuries. the, the equipment that we had there was very poor, uh, inadequate, and so the very next duty station that I got sent to, uh, Fort Sill, I hooked up with a neurologist, and together we obtained really good equipment, and we spent two years studying nerve injuries at Fort Sill. What did you learn uh, in the course of your studies? Uh, I learned that not all pain is local. That's probably the most important thing about nerves is that they refer pain along a specific course. And so if you know your anatomy, and anatomy was uh, definitely one of the most important subjects, uh, but if you know your anatomy and uh, you understand when somebody complains of pain in their thumb, especially when they complain of pain in both thumbs, then it's usually not the same problem uh, on both sides. It's a, a central problem, and it's usually in the neck at C5-6, we call it. C5 and 6, what does that mean? Uh, C5 is the fifth cervical vertebra, and C6 is the sixth, and in between them is the disc, and it usually gets the C6 nerve root coming out of the spine. So if someone were to feel behind their neck, how far down from... Uh, the base of the skull would C5 and 6 be? About halfway between the, the base of your skull and the lower part of your neck. And halfway. The, and the lower part of the neck is uh, about shoulder height. Correct. Let's talk about habits that develop in the course of someone's life or, as we might say, a pain in the neck. <laughs> it is probably the most common cause of pain is our habit. Uh, and so habit, when you, when you break it down, it's one group of muscles pulling one direction, uh, making those muscles stronger, and it's the opposite group of muscles that aren't being used become weaker and overstretched. And you're also affecting the circulation. So if when you're pulling to one side, you're compressing the circulation, and on the other side, you're tensioning it. So your habit is the beginning of becoming imbalanced, and it's the most common reason for pain that I see. Uh, it's what I spend a lot of time trying to change, but only the 
patient can actually do that, and it takes a long time for them to fully realize how frequently they're doing that. How would someone know that they have a habit that's causing pain and be able to identify the cause of the pain in relationship to the habit? You can look in a mirror or have a photo taken like happened to me, but if you look in a mirror, you can see whether one shoulder's up or one shoulder's down. Uh, if one is up, then you're holding it up, and the other one is also being held down. Uh, and that tension that's holding the, the head up tends to pull it over to that side. So uh, that particular tension ends up being the really significant compressive loading that occurs to the spine. Why would someone not hold their shoulders evenly? Uh, it's lack of awareness is the, the best thing I can tell you. It's the, the body's wisdom is not being, we're not connecting to it because most of us are left-brained individuals, I think, and we're not connecting with the, the right side of our brain, which tells us about our body. But it is one of the most important things I try to get people to do is connect with their bodies and their habits and, and what they're doing, how they're spending time. Our guest in this edition of Radio Curious is Dr. Bill Bracewell, a practicing physical therapist in Ukiah, California. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. What would be the genesis of a habit where one shoulder is held higher by an individual than the other shoulder? The main thing that pulls a shoulder down, for example, is that muscle I referred to earlier called the latissimus. Uh, dorsi muscle. And so it usually means that that person's using the right side of their body too much. And so they're pulling up on their hip on the right and they're pulling down with that, uh, pulling down on the shoulder. And so the neck makes an automatic movement away from that to counterbalance that effort. And so the tension that pulls the neck over also pulls that shoulder up and vice versa. So now you've got a real habit right there, and I see that an awful lot. That is one of the uh, pattern recognitions that has come about from uh, a bunch of seeing a bunch of patients, basically. Would being right-handed uh, be a cause of that? We initially thought that that was the reason, but uh, I know it plays a huge role in it, but it's not the cause because we see left-handed people doing the same thing, too. On the same right side. On the same right side, yeah. What's the thinking as to why it's that way for us? We don't have any proof at all. I, that's one thing I would really love to, to know. But the body, even though we spend a lot of time trying to get the body balanced and getting people as efficient as they can, the body will never be balanced because the organs are not balanced and the liver is heavier on the right side. So that may be a factor. We just don't know yet. Oh, we need a lot more research to, to find that out. In your 44 years of uh, observations, have any thoughts or theories come to you? Well, I've seen a number of physicians. I've talked to a number of physicians that I've treated, and they realize that the same process is happening in their own body. So we've uh, explored that. Um, one, the liver is one of the options. That uh, could be the the way we breathe, the the way we torque our bodies when we breathe, even. 
So the diaphragm may have another, maybe another consideration on that. Um, but we just don't know. Um, I, I, fortunately, I was in the position at Fort Sill where I was seeing like 30 patients a day. I couldn't possibly do that right now. But at the time, I really saw a lot of bodies, and I didn't know what I was seeing, but uh, after a while, one sees what one knows, and so you, you recognize that pattern, and uh, you begin trying to explain it. So that's where we've, that's our understanding up to this point anyway. I'd like to talk about this from an evolutionary perspective. In terms of now, uh, our species lives considerably longer than we did uh, even 5,000 years ago. But the history of the way we have evolved is so significantly greater than the 5,000 years. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, I do. I think being erect has many advantages. Um, it frees up our hands to use them the way that, that we've used them. But it really allows us to uh, move on two feet and to move very efficiently. And so a marathon runner, for example, uh, if you look at marathon runners while they're running, the ones who are standing erect uh, late in the, the race, those are the ones that are going to finish uh, and with good times. So the ones who are starting to collapse and bend over more and more, they're using too much energy, so they're not going to finish the race sometimes. So uh, the efficiency, I think, is really where we've evolved to. That brings us back to habits. It does. The great thing about movement is that we're able to remain efficient. Once we start sitting too much, then we start really developing a lot of different problems. And uh, people are always amazed to find when I tell them that uh, when you're sitting, you're putting two and a half times your body weight on your lower back. And if you slump, that goes that figure goes up to three times. So people are surprised about that. But yet, sitting is what people are doing. And now we're seeing it across the spectrum, the full spectrum, that sitting has become its own problem. Uh, you can no longer uh, offset sitting by exercise. And a lot of people think you can, but you can't. It's like smoking. Uh, so we've got to really get the word out that sitting is a huge problem. One guy from the New York Times, uh, Dr. Levine, from uh, actually he's from Minnesota, but he said that sitting is a lethal activity. And another guy from Business Week uh, said your chair is killing you. And now we have lots of statistics to back this up that sitting is creating problems across the board. Uh, if you sit more than six hours a day, your chances of uh, dying within the next 15 years is increased to 40 percent. Uh, your cardiovascular risk is increased to 80 uh, percent. If you have sat for 10 years in a sedentary job, you have a 50 percent greater risk of having colon cancer than somebody who sits less than three hours. And rectal cancer is 44 percent. Uh, so sitting is a big problem. Uh, it's something, if you listen to people long enough, you'll see how sitting affects every single entity that I see. 
actually, a few people don't think that it does. They'll say, well, sitting doesn't bother me, but I can't get up from sitting. And <laughs> they're not quite realizing, they're not getting the connection yet. So that's part of my job. You say sitting more than three hours. What I wonder, Bill Bracewell, is that three hours in one position in one chair, or is it segments? It's a really good question, uh, because the only thing that makes a difference at all in sitting is getting up and, and reducing the load. So unless you do that every 15 minutes or so, then sitting, the accumulative effect of sitting is what is going to create all of these things that we're seeing. How long should a person be erect when they stand up, when they get up? So standing is not a whole lot better than sitting uh, if you're standing in one position because too many people are standing on one leg and then when they shift to the other leg, they shift differently because most of their weight might be remain on the leg that they started on. So uh, standing is not a good solution, uh, but again, interrupting the load is. And so changing from sitting to standing, um, that's what makes the most sense of all. Well, Bill Bracewell, based on what you just said about sitting uh, too long, um, we've now, we're now standing uh, <laughs> for what may well be the remainder of our conversation. You were talking about standing on one leg versus uh, another posture. Tell us more. Well, if you stand on one leg, then your spine has to move towards that leg. So that's the problem. So we end up side bending towards that uh, leg that we're standing on. And if we're stuck on one leg from muscles being tight in our pelvis, then when we move to the other leg, we're not going to reverse what we've been doing, so we're going to shift to the other leg in a completely different way. So we'll end up being on each leg abnormally. So the weight really is not going to be centered anytime. You said that awfully fast, and I'm wondering if you could slow it down and break it down for someone to grasp what might be better for them to do if perchance they're sitting in a car while they're listening to us. Okay. Well, if you stand after a bit, your your pelvis, which is where your weight is, tends to drop towards that leg. So when that drops, then your spine is going to make a, an immediate movement to over that leg. So it's going to be more vertical of the leg. And unfortunately, we end up, like I said, getting stuck there because we might do that too often. And so then when we try to reverse it, by shifting to the other leg, we can't. We're stuck there. And so we have to make an alternate movement to the other leg. And that's how we end up going forward. We're bending, not only side bending, but bending forward. And so that's generally how people are uh, counterbalanced and balanced on each leg. The consequence of uh, habits that develop at what age? Ah, boy, it starts early. More we're realizing just how early I'm seeing younger and younger people with uh, these same problems. Uh, I'm realizing how significantly affected they've been for even uh, years by the time I see them. So early is um, post-adolescence? Yes. When the body is is more or less... It might be sooner. It might be when people start sitting in school and they have to sit for six to seven hours. And particularly now that they can't do P.E. or they're not doing P.E., 
So there. So let's stay with that for a moment. What is your recommendation about the posture in which people who are in school uh, uh, should assume? Well, first of all, it, it, this kind of education is something that we, I really would love to, to do. Um, and I just don't seem to have enough time to get there. But schools are where we should be going. We should be trying to get people this information earlier and earlier. Uh, not when they're 70 and 80, because it's much more difficult to deal with. But uh, the best sitting posture, there really is no best chair. Uh, the best posture, though, that you can uh, create when you're sitting is one in which you keep your feet on the ground, because we're just we're realizing just how important using those muscles is for being able to manage glucose, for example. As soon as you sit, that tends to shut down. So you need your feet on the ground. If you are sitting on a stool, then you can sit, sort of semi-sit at a stool, and you can work pretty well in that position. But getting that to schools, that's going to be quite a challenge. If an adult is sitting at a bar stool uh, at a table of 42 inches or, or counter height, and their feet are resting on a railing that would be in the approximate same position as the floor, how does that make a difference? You want it that you want your feet to be close to your center. So the further we move anything away from our center, the more the body has to make a, a counterbalancing move. So if your feet are underneath you more, then that's better. If you put them out on a stool, or a lot of people, for example, sit down and they put their legs out on stools, uh, and that's probably the worst thing they can do because that bends the spine even more. So now you're talking about the uh, posture of most drivers of most cars. Absolutely. I tend, like I said, when I pass somebody on the road, I try not to look sometimes. <laughs> In your life, mm -hmm. uh, you drive a lot. I do. How do you address that issue? Well, I'm moving a lot when I'm sitting. Uh, I try to really assume the best posture. I'm frequently interrupting the, the load on my neck, for example. I'm moving my pelvis uh, in multiple ways. I'm lifting it on e each side. I'm rotating it forward. I'm pushing into the ground with my left leg uh, to offset how much I push into the uh, floor with my right foot. Well, Bill Bracewell, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you about a eureka or an aha moment that changed your life. A really severe problem with the herniated disc. I suddenly realized that really what I was doing was centering my body and that I couldn't center my body. The disc was preventing me from actually getting to the center, getting my lower back and pelvis to the center. So that was a real key moment in retrospect, that postural connection. What would you like to do with the rest of your One Precious Life? Well, I'm sort of doing it right now. I'm teaching uh, and uh, I'm continuing to work. I'd like to write a book, actually. Uh, I think I, people and patients are continually telling me I need to sit down and pull this together for them. Speaking of books, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? I referred to it earlier, and that was Mabel Ellsworth Todd's book, The Thinking Body. She does a great job of describing the connection of the anatomy to 
the way we move. It's now back in print. Well, Dr. Bill Bracewell, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thanks for having me. Bill Bracewell is a doctor of physical therapy, a practicing physical therapist in Ukiah, California. The book he recommends is The Thinking Body by Mabel Ellsworth Todd. This program was recorded on December 15th, 2014. There are over 500 archive editions of Radio Curious on our website www.radiocurious.org where they're free for you to stream, download, enjoy, and share. We appreciate your curiosity, ideas, comments, and questions. You may reach us by email curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestead is our associate producer and I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.